This is Dr. Marnie Peterson. I'm the Outreach Coordinator for the Antimicrobial Stewardship Project, which was launched last year by the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Components of this project are podcasts with global experts in the field of antimicrobial stewardship and antibiotic resistance. Today, I have the pleasure to be speaking with Professor Peter Davey from the University of Dundee Medical School about his important work to improve antibiotic prescribing practices. He is the lead author for the recently published and updated Cochrane Systematic Review of Interventions to Improve Antibiotic Prescribing Practice for Hospital Inpatients, which will be the focus of our conversation today. A little bit of background about Professor Davey. He trained in infectious diseases in Birmingham, United Kingdom, and completed his medical degree at the University of London before joining the University of Dundee in 1980. He also held a Welcome Trust Fellowship at Tufts New England Medical Center from 1984 to 1985. He was appointed to a NASCA Senior Lectureship in Clinical Pharmacology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Dundee in 1986. He is the Education Secretary of the British Society for Antimicrobial Chemotherapy and was the president of that society from 2006 to 2009. His research currently focuses on improving the quality and safety of medical care, particularly on improving antibiotic stewardship and infection management. He has over 30 years of experience in research focused on the outcomes of antimicrobial chemotherapy and the relationships between prescribing and resistance. Dr. Davey. Professor Davey, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for the invite. So to begin, as I mentioned, we will be discussing the Cochrane Systematic Review that you were the first, the lead author on. And I would like to begin by having you provide our listeners with some background to describe this, this updated review. So um, the update, I think we, we, we wanted, well, the, the, the previous version of the review um, was, was, was quite a long time ago. So the actual literature search um, finished in 2006. So um, we wanted to update it to um, more recent 2014 and 15. Um, but I think we also wanted to do a better job of integrating evidence from randomized trials with non-randomized studies um, and to really get a better sense of um, what does the randomized trial evidence tell you, but also what's the evidence that people are really applying that in practice? And we were very keen that we would be able to include studies from as wide um, a number of countries and continents as possible. So some of the stated objectives in this study is that you, you were not only looking at the effectiveness and safety of the interventions to improve antibiotic prescribing, but you were also looking to determine by the effect by which these interventions were implemented via a restricted or enablement manner. So I was, I would like you just to explain a little bit about what your initial primary outcomes were related to the actual interventions, but also describe the two intervention functions, the restriction versus the enablement. Okay, well, we, we, we found really that the best way to look at the impact on antimicrobial prescribing was either to look at compliance with guidelines, um, where you're just measuring the percentage of patients who are compliant with the guideline, or to look at um, measures of the amount of antibiotics given. 
Um, so we we were so you'd look at duration of antibiotic treatment, um, or you might even look at the percentage of people who were treated with an antibiotic. I think we were also keen to divide our antimicrobial prescribing data into things that were really about which antibiotic do you give a patient, which we called antibiotic choice, and then looking for more evidence about things that might change how much antibiotic people were exposed to. So that would be either whether they got treated at all in the first place or the total duration of all antibiotic treatment. So the the um, trials, we, we analyzed either as percentage compliance with guidelines or as duration of total antibiotic treatment. Um, so that was our kind of prescribing outcome measure. We were obviously interested in the evidence that changing prescribing actually had any impact on resistance or clostridium difficulty. And we were keen to reassure people that if you comply with the guidelines, that it, it doesn't actually make the clinical outcomes worse. Um, so generally, the interventions were probably in clinicians' eyes asking them to be more conservative in, what, in, in how they used antibiotics. So they would be concerned that patient outcomes wouldn't be as good. Um, so the, 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 the behavioral um, terms, restriction and enablement, really came in because we wanted, to un we wanted to be able to understand variation in the effectiveness of interventions. Um, and we worked with a psychologist, Susan Mickey, who's really an expert in this area. So Susan's work has... Uh, really started out with with um, personal behavioral change. So it, it started out with working on giving up smoking, losing weight, healthier eating, taking more exercise, so public interventions around those sort of behaviors, but has increasingly um, applied the same methods to changing professional behavior. Um, and Susan's led a, a multi disciplinary team in social science around getting social scientists to use ter terms in a common way, whether they're psychologists or sociologists or anthropologists. So these terms, enablement and restriction, come from work that Susan has been leading around how you describe common behavior change techniques um, so that what she would like is, you know, a sociologist might approach changing behavior differently from a psychologist, but they probably do use the same techniques in there. Um, so these terms, enablement and restriction, are what are called behavior change functions. So they're at a higher level than a technique such as setting a goal or giving people feedback or doing action planning. So so a behavior change function is saying what broadly how does that change behavior? And Susan's work um, uses three really high level terms, capability, opportunity, motivation, as, as really all behavior change is about one or more of those three things. It's about increasing people's capability, their personal ability to change, 
the opportunity that they have to change things. So that means that they they want to change the prescribing, but there, there's, there's no things getting in their way, which might include senior colleagues who won't let them, and they're motivated to do it. Um, so it, I think restriction is the easier of the two terms to to describe. Um, so restriction really means anything which puts a barrier in front of people to stop them doing the thing that you don't want them to do. So in, in antibiotic um, stewardship, I think people would be quite used to the idea of um, order forms. You, you can't prescribe vancomycin without filling in a form which justifies using it. And probably the next next sort of level of restriction for up from there is that you have to speak to a microbiologist or infectious diseases person about the patient before they authorize you to use vancomycin. Um, a cruder but very effective way of dealing with that is that you just take vancomycin out of the clinical areas. It's no longer on the ward, so people have to call the pharmacy to get vancomycin and they have to speak to someone. So th these are all examples of restriction. Um, and the previous version of the review had shown, perhaps not surprisingly, that if you if you introduce these sort of restrictive components to an intervention, it has a, a faster effect. And if you take the drugs off the ward, you're liable to see an effect tomorrow you know, because they're not there anymore. Um, so that wasn't too surprising. And Susan said, why don't you look then at what she calls enablement? So these are interventions which have some sort of direct interaction with the prescriber at the time they're thinking about what to do. Um, so enablement interventions would include things like um, a reminder that's on a lab report form. So you might have a, a test like procalcitonin um, and so the lab form says this, this is the result and if it's less than X we suggest you, know, you don't start the antibiotics or you stop the antibiotics and if it's greater than X you, know, you maybe continue them. So it's kind of giving the prescriber some additional information at the time that they're managing the patient which points them in, you know, it helps to influence their decision making. Um, so that kind of reminder we would call um, enabling, whereas you know, simply having an antibiotic policy on the wall in the clinical area is a reminder, but it's not really. It's just there. You know, it's not. It's not doing something to prompt the prescriber. So things that are computerized order forms that have advice in them, they would be enabling. Simply giving people feedback about what they're doing over time is, because it makes them think, makes them think about the next patient. You know, you, it, it says, here's what we asked you to do, this is what you've done, um, what, you know, and it just prompts them to think, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to really try and do, do this with the next patient. So in the review, we've tried to sort of well, we we have, I think, distinguished the the, the interventions into those that are restrictive, those that we think have these enabling functions to them, and the rest really are about simple education or persuasion. They're about having meetings, um, 
to discuss things. So we, we, we kind of pre, with Susan's help, we anticipated what the interventions would be and we had a, a, a strict way of putting them into these three boxes, restricting, enabling, or simply education and persuasion. I mean, we did, to be honest, as you do, as you go through the studies, go back to Susan and say, you know, can you help us define this a little bit more clearly, you know, where, so we would have two reviewers looking at the same paper and not agreeing about whether they were enabling or not, and we'd go back to Susan and sort out the differences and try and clarify the definitions. So I guess what's in the, what's in the, published review are definitions that all the people reviewing the papers felt comfortable with and were able to consistently classify um, papers with. You know, we did read 221 papers. <laughs> we did have quite a lot of practice. So, you know, if they're not completely clear to people, you know, just reading them, I kind of suggest having a look at some of the... So each each of the papers in the review um, has, an in, is part, is, is, has an entry in, in the table of included studies, which is very long because there are 221 included studies. But you know, within those, you can see exactly what we said the intervention was, what were the components in sort of traditional stewardship terms, audit and feedback, review and recommend change, etc. And then what we thought the intervention functions were. So you should be able to see there how we classified them and maybe have a go at you know, looking at one of the papers and, and then seeing if, if you can understand um, how we got there. But I mean, the point of all this, I think, is that if everybody did use the same sort of classification approach and did have a kind of systematic approach to describing what they've done, um, their behavior change, then I think it will be much easier to really understand what other people are doing, to reproduce it if you like their results. Um, and there is a, um, a guideline that's called TIDIA, which um, is in the British Medical Journal, but it's all about better reporting of interventions to aid with um, reproducing them. So, um, We'll, we'll, we'll make that reference available to people. And, you know, one of the things that we did was go back to the authors and say, you know, can you tell us what you did? And sometimes actually to say, look, we think you did this or we think you didn't do that, did you? And, you know, quite often our judgment, our, our hunches were wrong, importantly wrong. So, you know, I think this really is, recognized now across the social sciences as being important that we all have a, you know, a, a common language and that we're using these terms in the same way. Um, so I would say probably in terms of coming towards the end when we're saying what we need to do, that would that would be high on my list. Okay. Um, and thank you for the reference. We'll be, we'll be posting that with the podcast, the, the British Medical Journal guideline. Um, just to speak... Uh, a little tiny bit more about um, the restriction versus enablement. When you looked at these data and their effects on the interventions, did you did you have any key findings there, or notice how they might affect the sustainability of an antimicrobial stewardship program? Um, actually, we 
we did look at sustainability. There weren't many studies, um, there were really only a handful, where they gave you data about what was happening before they did the intervention, what happened after they did the intervention, and then what happened if they removed the intervention. And of the ones they were, all but one was about removing a restrictive intervention. Um, and those really all showed that um, behavior went back to how it had been. I mean, it w there was one study where the intervention was having a, um, an infectious diseases specialist go into a clinical ward and um, review patients and discuss how they thought they should be managed. So that, that review and recommend change we would classify as an enablement um, intervention because you're going to talk to people at the time they're managing the patients and discussing how they might do things differently. So they um, had that in place for seven years in a unit and then they were just finding that they, you know, they were having other calls on that resource, that infectious diseases specialist. So they decided to reallocate them and their intervention had a roughly 30% reduction in antibiotic costs when they started it and when the infectious diseases physician was, was removed or re reallocated, um, their costs went back up by almost exactly the same amount, which is kind of depressing really, the, the idea that you know, an intervention could be in place in a clinical service for seven years and mm -hmm. yet it doesn't seem to make, if you remove that person who's going and reviewing the patients, it all goes back to where it was. Um, but I guess, you know, at the same time, it isn't that surprising when you think that a clinical service, I mean, certainly in the UK now, in a hospital, probably doesn't have the same staff, certainly doctors, junior doctors who make a lot of the decisions, you know, rotate very often. They're on shifts, you know, so it's a very, very dynamic set of staff. Um, so maybe there isn't any kind of group learning from that kind of intervention. So I think we should be looking for interventions that um, involve the people whose behavior you're trying to change in actually, well, first of all, deciding what to do, setting a goal, involve them in, in how they, what changes they make to achieve that goal, involve them in giving feedback. Um, I you know, personally feel if you're going to go beyond simple guideline issuing, which certainly works, you know, if, you, if you're looking for more than the 10% improvement you would probably get by issuing clear instructions about what to do and having a few meetings, if you want to go beyond that, you've really got to engage uh, more with, with the clinical teams if you want their behavior to truly change because you know, if, if they're the drivers for change, it's much more likely that it's actually going to be sustained. And uh, I mean, the, I think probably one of the most depressing results of the review is there's a one single paper in the entire review, which is about engaging with junior doctors and giving them feedback about what they're doing and having regular meetings with them um, about how they're doing and you know, action planning for how they could do better. So we don't know if that was more sustained. I put money on it. <laughs> yeah. 
being the most you know, most likely to be sustained. But I guess you know someone's going to come back and say, "Well, show me the added value." You know, that there's a there's a lot of cost um, in that kind of investment. I would agree, but I'm also thinking, you know, as an as an infectious diseases specialist, maybe having a monthly meeting with the junior doctors, giving them feedback might be a better use of my time than going on the ward their ward every day writing in the notes saying I wouldn't do that. You know, because if you if you're getting them to review their own notes and decide what needs changing, that might just have a more more stickiness. Yeah. So I guess I guess I, I can't tell people what's to stay. I, I think in, in improvement I would say the two biggest challenges are sustainability and scale you know so, so so you want interventions where you can get them to work in one ward and you can then move that you know resource to another ward and you can get them to change while the other first ward state you know carries on its improvement that's what we that's nirvana <laughs> but it's yeah it's hard to achieve yeah they talk about a lot of time the importance of having the the champion for your antimicrobial stewardship program and and that can include not only physicians but your pharmacists nursing perhaps even uh people within your infection control and, and laboratories so and and then how they lead lead and teach and educate further so it seems very important to kind of shift the whole perspective yeah and i think a sort of team pride in mm-hmm. what we're doing you know and a, a team awareness <clears throat> so that you know, as people move on and new people join, this is just the way we do things here. You know, this is the way we do business. Um, so that, you know, it isn't an intervention. It's, it ceases to be an intervention. It just becomes normal. Um, yeah. So I guess my, I think my anxiety about a lot of the interventions is probably that they're not like that. Um, and the minute you remove the resource and the interest, the, the, the effects can go away. So with our final minutes here, I'd like to shift and talk a little bit more about um, the global strategies for taking the research and data within the review and expanding that globally. And within the manuscript, you you described that you've pr- proposed three questions, which a transnational working group within the joint programming initiative and antimicrobial resistance is going to address this year. Um, And some of those questions posed are what behavioral changes can be recommended to optimize stewardship programs, and then how do we take this into a more global strategy? Okay. Comment a little bit about that. Yes. So um, this workshop will actually be happening at the end of April, so there obviously will be recommendations coming out from that. And... This um, joint programming initiative um, is um, supported by research councils in a number of countries. To be honest, I'm not entirely sure how those countries <laughs> got together, but they're um, they're not obvious boundaries. So there are there are European countries in this uh, network who are not part of the EU. Canada is part of it. So that somehow. Um, these countries got together and said that they would use some of their national research resources to support um, this initiative, and one of their ideas was transnational networks. So that's that's the background. 
Um, I, I think what we can say is well, the results that we got in the review were not at all surprising to Susan Mickey as a psychologist. You know, she would have really been baffled if we hadn't got those results. Um, you know, so so and and, and within enablement um, type interventions, enabling interventions, psychologists know um, that three things are really critical: goal setting, um, action planning, and feedback. And I know those terms sound off-putting, but I think if if everybody kind of went out of the hospital and thought, if I was trying to change my own behavior, if I want to lose weight or I want to get fitter, what do I do? And you would not just say, oh, I want to lose weight. You know, you would say, I'm going to set myself a goal and it will, you wouldn't necessarily say it would be how good by when, but you almost certainly would say, I want to lose so many pounds by such and such a date or within three months. So the, your goal would definitely be that kind of how good by when goal. And looking at all the interventions in our review, I mean, really a handful did that. Most of them said we'd like you to use less cephalosporins or shorter antibiotic courses. They didn't say, you know, we are looking for a reduction by, you know, one day in your courses within three months, um, which is what they should have done. And then the next thing you would do if you were losing weight is you'd weigh yourself um, regularly and you'd have an idea of how, you know, how well you were going towards your target in three months. And so that's that's measurement and feedback, self-monitoring and feedback. So you're measuring yourself and you're sharing that information with yourself, but, you know, anyone else. So if it was a team who was trying to do better, you'd share it with them. Um, and then when you find that you're not getting it there as quickly as you need to, <clears throat> you would do action planning. You would think, what can I do to lose this weight? You know, you would think about what are the things that you're finding are making it hard. Well, I go out with these friends and we always eat more than we should. So I'm just going to politely not go out. You know, you would you would think about what can I do to, to achieve my goals. So I think if people thought like that about antimicrobial stewardship, um, then they and it's not. I think it's about thinking like that and thinking about realistically within the resources we've got, how can we do that? Um, so Susan would say that's control or self-regulation theory. The research for that, 30 years of research, was synthesized um, in the 1960s, 70s. <laughs> so yeah, this is, in psychology, this is almost like gravity. <laughs> this is, yeah, we know this works. So I think, I think we could do a better job of applying theory and practice to our stewardship and not, resist the temptation to say, you know, we want a, a cluster randomized trial to show that um, goal setting makes a difference to stewardship. You know, I just, it will, <laughs> if if you can do it within your resources. So I think, I think what we're thinking for this transnational working group is if we can kind of get people, first of all, understanding what they need to report, the tidier bit of it, what they need to report, how to report it. And then it's really about looking around 
uh, I think making use of all the variation, making, saying, you know, all the hospitals in the UK are very different. So, you know, by all means, try and do this in different ways. Um, please share your results, you know, in a way that says, you know, we think we've cracked a particular problem. Um, this is how we did it. And other people can look at that and maybe get in touch with you and say, you know, I think probably initially convince us, you know, <laughs> we don't believe you, but convince us you really did that. Um, and then say, okay, yeah, it looks like you did. How did you, how, how did you do that? What did you do? Mm-hmm. And think about how they could adapt you know, these things to their um, practice. And I guess, I guess an example we've already had in Scotland, you know, where we used a web-based way of reporting. And the goal was that within three months, um, 95% of patients coming into acute medical or surgical units <clears throat> would have their indication for antibiotics um, recorded in the notes, and um, it would be compliant with the local guidelines. So that was the target. And out of about 20-odd participating hospitals, one achieved that result um, within the three months, and nobody believed them. So people went and looked and said, well, yeah, no, it's true. You, you've convinced us that uh, what did you do? And it turned out they were the only um, hospital where the consultants, the senior doctors on these units have said to their junior doctors, right, you know, we're going to do this. And they got the junior doctors to collect the data and the consultants said, we will review this with you every week and, you know, we'll see how you're getting on and we'll talk about what you need, what needs to change to help you get there. And every other hospital they did what we did here, which is you know, they had a pharmacist collecting the data and they fed the information back to the junior doctors, but it didn't have that kind of, as you said earlier, the champion, the, you know, the leadership. Um, you know, so that, I think that kind of approach can be very effective in, in uh, sort of understanding who, who's doing better, why are they doing better, could we do that here? Yeah, almost a, a format for being able to share those success stories so people can learn from one another. Yes. Or that. And, and you know, it, 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 we're never going to get to this. This is not like taking a pill, you know, these are behavior change things. We're never going to get to a point, well, if you just take that pill, you know, everything will be better. You know, it's much more about in the context in which you work, um, learning from others about what might make things work better, and then thinking, how can you apply that? Um, so I, I think we are kind of going towards a different kind of evidence. I mean, I, I, I think we've, we feel we've kind of reached the limit on the kind of evidence we've got in this review around do things work? Because the answer is, you know, really, yeah, quite a lot of things work. <laughs> and it's more about what what works best, you know, in which circumstances, why. Um, and I, I I just don't think randomized trials are really going to be able to, 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 to sort of, you know, give you that broad evidence. I think where we do need randomized trials or that kind of large-scale studies is around connecting the, um, the changes in prescribing to changes in clinical or microbial outcomes. 
probably another topic that we'll spend time on. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Professor Davey. I really appreciate your time um, describing your efforts in, in leading these approaches to opti uh, optimizing antibiotic prescribing practices, and especially around these more forward-thinking initiatives around these you know, within the context of antimicrobial stewardship of these behavioral changes that we seem to need to talk a little bit more about and with goal setting and then also sharing across our, our countries and into what programs work. So I really appreciate your time and all of these insights today. Okay. Well, thank you for the opportunity.